0: What's up, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, I would like to welcome you back to the Real Talk with Zuby podcast. On today's episode, we've got on a very special guest. He is an evolutionary behavioral scientist. He is also an author, a public intellectual, and a very fantastic YouTube commentator. This is Dr. Gad Sad. How are you doing? Welcome to the show.
1: How are you, sir? Good to be with you. I am very well, thank you. And how are you on this fine day? uh good i have a bit of a lower back problem i have some herniated discs and once in a while it flares up if i do the most innocuous move. So i'm in one of those painful episodes but seeing you is going to i'm sure cure me of my pain that's awesome you weren't trying to break my deadlift record were you <laughs> it was not i i don't, I don't think i could <laughs> i could lift what you lifted if i had 10 other men with me. <laughs> that's
0: all right man yeah no funnily enough i've got a, a little bit of a lower back injury um that's been hitting me since December, oh, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to I'm trying to work my way through it. Yeah, but these things happen. So I've given um, a very brief introduction to who you are. So for the audience members who may not know you, why don't you introduce yourself, Doctor Sad?
1: So uh, I'm a professor, as you correctly stated. Uh, I've spent much of my career applying evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology and understanding human behavior in general, but consumer behavior in particular. I define consumer behavior very broadly, so it's not just you know consuming Coca-Cola and Starbucks and wearing jeans, but also we consume religious narratives, we, we consume song lyrics, we consume friendships, so pretty much everything could be fitted under the rubric of consumption. And so what I do is I look at the biological forces that compel us to be the consumers that we are. So that's my scientific work, uh, you know, very briefly. Uh, but I'm also, as you know, very active in the you know public arena uh, in terms of the battle of ideas. I try to fight against all sorts of bad ideas that ha- most of which have arisen within the university setting, most- radical feminism, identity politics. So I really have two hats, that of a professor and someone who uh, spars with people about bad ideas. And
0: how have those two things merged together? Where is it that you're a professor? Which university is that?
1: I'm at uh, Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Uh, Mm. And as I uh, say, Montreal is beautiful because it has four seasons, winter, 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 and July. (laughs) And July, huh? (laughs) (laughs) So, so that's, yeah, yeah,
0: that's awesome. I'll, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go into the past in a bit, but while we're in the present, what one thing I would like to um, ask you about is how those two. I don't want to say two personas because you're you're the same person, but those two lines of work. So what you're doing within Concordia University and in the academic world, versus what you're doing on Twitter, on YouTube, just being involved in the public conversations. How have those two things? aligned or right. helped helped each other hindered each other
1: what have their responses been because those are two quite yeah. different worlds i guess i started seeing uh the bad ideas that you know pervade throughout academia when i tried to uh pursue my scientific agenda namely to darwinize consumer behavior to darwinize the behavioral sciences i was shocked that so many social scientists Thought that it was heretical to argue that humans are biological beings. Uh, most of whom thought that sure, biology matters when it comes to explaining the behavior of your dog, to explain the behavior of the mosquito, of the giraffe. But don't you dare say that biology is relevant for human behavior. We transcend our biology. We are cultural animals. So I started seeing the you know endless the, the truly endless tsunami of stupidity that was quite unique to academia, and so. I was first exposed to many of these regressive ideas, uh, not as a public intellectual, but as someone who's just going trying to go about doing my lab work, my scientific work. And the more I was exposed to the ecosystem of the university, the more I became, in, you know, enraged at some of the lunacy that was uh, unfolding within the academic setting. For example, postmodernism is the idea that, you know, there are no relative. Uh, there are no absolute truths. Everything is relative. Well, you know, it's very difficult to be a scientist if you wake up in the morning thinking that there are no universal truths. I mean, we wake up trying to the best of our abilities to understand certain regularities that define some universal truth. We may not always succeed, but we certainly start off the day thinking that there are some universal truths. And so... Uh, as you said, it's not so much that I have multiple personas, although I'm, I'm guessing you're referring to the fact that sometimes I use humor and sarcasm. Yeah, yeah. I think that really comes from just my personhood. Uh, I can be deadly serious and deliver a lecture at Stanford University where I would be wearing a bow tie, but I'm not so uh, uptight to presume that a professor can't be funny, can't be humorous. It's, so I've got multiple persuasion strategies that I pull out of my toolbox in the pursuit of spreading good ideas. If sometimes I have to self-flagellate myself on YouTube. as Quite quite literally. Quite literally. (laughs) Uh, And I I think that, frankly, comes from a, if I may say, a a self-confidence at not having to hide behind the facade of academia. You can be a very serious academic, as I think I am, but also be a very fun, down-to-earth, humorous guy. And so... I really try to use all of the weaponry that I have to spread good ideas and defeat bad ones.
0: Awesome. And I like that. I mean, I, I can't remember when I I think I first came across you. I think on your very first Joe Rogan okay. appearance, because you've been on there a couple of times now, right? Uh,
1: maybe five or six,
0: yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think I saw the very first one. Oh, nice. And I was, yeah, I think I saw the very first one, and that was like, okay, this is this is interesting. Um, and then I saw some of the... Videos you've done solo on YouTube. I saw the first conversation you had with Jordan Peterson several years ago. Right. So you know I've seen uh, your appearances on the Rubin Report. So yeah, I've just uh, kind of been seeing you out there and seeing your profile growing, and it's uh, it's uh, it's fascinating because I think you you seem to be one of the few people who's you know a serious academic and a professor in that world, but who also crosses that chasm and isn't just in this little academia bubble. And then, you know, and is getting kind of caught up in all the stuff that lots of the stuff that you're opposing, you know, you openly speak out about it. And I think that's, I'm assuming that's where a very significant amount of your wider following has
1: come from. Exactly. And and frankly, uh, that, you know, the multiple hats that I wear is really something that has been an indelible part of my personhood since since as far back as I can remember. So if I think back, for example, in high school, uh, I could easily traverse through all of the different cliques in high school and be accepted fully by all of them uh so i was the you know the the brainy kid who got the top marks but i was also the top soccer player so all the girls and all the jocks respected me because i was the top soccer player so in a sense i take great pride in that and that I'm, i'm able to uh, reach out to many different groups and connect with them uh, so I'm not just the stuffy academic I can you know from my soccer background I've run around with some very rough guys who did not pursue a great trajectory in life mm-hmm. and I see them today as a 54 year old guy and and be able to communicate with them uh, in the same way that I am with the fancy Stanford types and so I actually take great pride in being able to have that behavioral plasticity
0: yeah I mean how do your fellow academics in general respond to that do you have a lot of support from them and is it is it silent or is it yeah, right or do they speak out about it you know
1: uh, it's i think regrettably it's more the latter uh, i receive a million emails from academics saying how much they admire my work and they wish they could be as outspoken and so on but yet they will end pretty much every email with but please don't uh, advertise <laughs> My name so not only do they not have the 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 courage to take the positions that I do they don't even have the courage to publicly proclaim that they support those who are on the front lines and so mm-hmm. that's something that's very regrettable and it's something that I try to compel them sometimes hard harshly sometimes gently to get involved but it's cowardice is a deadly sin so it's, yeah. it's, it's a tough obstacle to get over it's interesting because it
0: very much parallels the worlds of music and entertainment. To be honest with you, as far as I can see, I mean, obviously, I'm a I'm a rapper. That's what I'm primarily known for, besides my deadlift record. And um, I do get a lot of people, not even just in my genre, but just musicians in general, or people who are actors, or um, you know, whether it's in the real world on Twitter or whatever, I'll get people like, "Yeah, man, like I love what you're doing. I'm glad. I'm glad someone is saying what you're saying." But yeah, like. You know, either they'll ask me if I'm worried, like, oh, are you worried about how this is going to impact you here or there? And I'm kind of like, no. And then they'll also be like, you know, I want, I feel the same way, but I worry about I might not get a booking or I might lose my fan base or someone might try to boycott me or whatever it is. And where has this whole climate of fear stemmed from? I mean, it's in the USA, it's in Canada, it's in the UK, the bastions of free speech. People are self-censoring themselves. Where do you think that all stems from?
1: Well, yeah, that's that's really what I try to do in my forthcoming book. So uh, for those of you who, who, the viewers who may not know, let me just kind of give you a brief summary of it. So I basically argue that in the same way that an epidemiologist uh, who's studying, uh, you know, where patient zero for a particular uh, epidemic has started from, right? Where, where did the HIV virus start from? And then you start looking at, you know, the transmissibility rates and so on. I argue that humans, of course, can be infected and can be parasitized, not just by actual biological agents, but they can be parasitized by bad ideas. And so I take that epidemiological model and I argue that, as I mentioned briefly when we started, that all of these bad ideas, probably nearly every single one of them, really comes from the ecosystem of the university. And so, it's, so to answer your question, I would say in the last 30, 40 years, there has been a systematic attack on the edifices of reason, uh, and so I—that's why I call these—you know—groups of folks like the postmodernists. I call them intellectual terrorists because they—they they truly are akin to the 9/11 guys who, you know, flew the—the the planes onto the buildings. I, I consider many of these—you uh, know—miscreants to be uh, guys who are flying edifices of—I mean—planes of bullshit into our edifices of reason, right? Uh, Now, why did these movements start? In many cases, they started from noble causes, right? So, for example, a lot of cultural anthropologists thought that, well, you know, biology is dangerous. Look, the the Nazis misused biology to support their ideology. British social class elitists used Darwinian theory to support the fact that they are the upper class and screw those people in the lower class. Eugenicists have misused evolutionary principles to say, "Hey, what's wrong with sterilizing people who are undesirable? Let's sterilize gays." Now, of course, none of this, none of these, you know, horrific ideas have anything to do with evolutionary theory. But because a bunch of bad guys usurped these evolutionary principles, a lot of cultural anthropologists thought, "Okay, well, let's now create a worldview where biology ceases to matter for humans, right? And therefore, you get something like cultural relativism. There are no universal." human universals. Biology doesn't matter for humans. Everything is culture specific. Everything is is a social construction. And so it the the idiocy might have started from a noble cause trying to protect people from the nefarious forces of bad political ideologies. But then the downstream effects is that our edifices of reason are attacked. Same thing with radical feminism, for example, right? If you want to try to end sexism well, according to many of these radical feminists, you have to argue that men and women are indistinguishable from one another. Now, of course, you could that's idiotic, right? Men and women are distinguishable from one another, and of course, they should live equally under the law. So to answer your question, what I do in the book is I demonstrate that each of these profoundly idiotic movements started with a noble cause, but then the downstream effect is we get all the nonsense that you you mentioned. Yeah. I mean, in my
0: view, I've no, I noticed in the past sort of, I want to say five years or so, in terms of the mainstream impact of a lot of these ideas that I think have been building up over decades, it seems like it sort of came to a head maybe 2012, 2013, and then in 2014, 2015, it's like it's just accelerated, and it's, it's a yeah. bit like, whoa, where have all these bizarre ideas come from, where I can I can now go on Twitter and, and uh, say that, men and women are different and I'll get a thousand likes and then I'll get a thousand people attacking me and calling me names. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, what's happened here? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what, what, What's happened? I, this, I I don't say anything that's extremely, well, I'd like to think I'm occasionally profound, but I think a lot of the stuff I say that gets the biggest response is very basic and obvious, right. but you know, either other people are afraid to say it or people push back against it and start making arguments of things that are not, there's lots of things we can argue about in the world, but there are certain things that are just objective fact and extremely obvious to the point that a two-year-old could tell you, you know? Um, I mean, the the response to this, we alluded to my deadlift tweet earlier, which went incredibly internationally viral. And some of the messages... and. <laughs> And comments and things I received on that were,
1: were mind-blowing. It was it was an amazing study of... uh, yeah, Just for you to know, uh, uh, m- most of the stuff that you're now seeing, as you said, in the last three or four years, mm. I was the proverbial, what is the term, the uh, the bird in the, the coal mine? Can- can- Canary car- coal mine. Yeah. Uh, because again, as someone who is deeply entrenched within academia, I saw all of these things developing within academia and try to warn people as best as I could so for example the video that of course went viral in your case is something that I experienced in 2002 and so for those viewers of yours who uh, may not know the story uh, here you go uh, in 2002 one of my former doctoral students has had just defended his uh, doctoral dissertation and so he had invited me uh, to, to go out to celebrate with my wife and his romantic interest at the time. And he had warned me that uh, she was a uh, graduate student, uh, I think, in cultural anthropology and a postmodernist and a radical feminist. So she had sort of the holy trilogy of bulls**t, erathleticized her brain. And so he asked sort of gently, you know, can you, do you think we can have a good time? Like, so basically (laughs) he's asking me to be on my best behavior. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So oh, I said, oh, don't, don't worry. You know, mum's the word. I'm going to be on my best behavior, which, of course, I wasn't going to adhere to. Uh, and so about halfway through the the dinner, I asked her, uh, so I hear, you know, you're a postmodernist. Uh, she said, yeah, yeah, I'm a postmodernist. Uh, okay, well, so postmodernism says that there are no universal truths, of course, other than the one universal truth, that there are no universal truths, of course. And uh, so do you mind – I'm an evolution psychologist, and so I do operate under the premise that there are universal truths, human universals, for example. So how about I try to propose what I consider to be a universal, and then you can tell me how it's not true and it's all relative and so on. She goes, okay, shoot, go ahead. So now we're going to come to what preceded your deadlift uh, case. I said, okay, well, is it true, is it a human universal that within Homo sapiens, only women bear children? Is that a universal truth? So she scoffed. She rolled her eyes. She could not believe at how disgustingly materialist materialist I was, and said, "Absolutely not." I said, well, "What do you mean? How's that?" She said, "Well, there is a tribe, Japanese tribe, off some island, buga-buga, where uh, within their spiritual realm, it is the men who bear children." So by you restricting the definition to the biological realm, this is how you keep us, you know, barefoot and pregnant. So within the spiritual realm of this cultural tradition, it is the men who bear children. To which I then answered, okay, well, maybe maybe it's too controversial for me to argue that only women bear children. So let me pick a less controversial case. Is it true that from any vantage point on earth, sailors have since time immemorial Uh, used the following uh, universal truth the sun rises in the east and sets in the west to which she answered well what do you mean by east and west and what do you mean what do you mean by sun that which you call the sun i call dancing hyena to which i answered right the dancing hyena rises in the east and sets in the west i put on dancing hyena lotion when i go to the caribbean to which she said, "I don't play those label games." There, she was using something called uh, deconstructionism, mm-hmm. uh, right? Where it's uh, language creates reality. Now that story became famous, but that story is exactly what predicts you getting the world record for right <laughs> when we when we can't agree that women only bear children. In two thousand two, mm-hmm. uh, Zuby was going to come along in two thousand nineteen. I could have predicted that for you. Wow.
0: It is, it is very weird. I mean, I don't even watch TV, but um, fortunately, I don't, I don't have a TV in this house, which is wonderful. But I saw that on the BBC over here recently, I'm pretty sure it was the BBC, they had a debate on, no, I think it was ITV, they had a debate on whether men could be mothers. This was like two or three weeks ago. Like the, the topic of the conversation was, can men also be mothers? when i had my interview with um one of the bbc stations after my after my uh female deadlift record the topic of the conversation the headline topic was do biological men have a strength advantage over biological women in sports that, that so i was i was sitting there having this discussion in 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 my brain i'm kind of like how how did we get here like yeah. how how is this a uh, Again, I'm all up for debating opinions, but how is this a, a question? At what point did this become a question?
1: Well, I think, so to go back to the point that I made earlier about sort of the noble cause that started many of this uh, lunacy, mm. I also think it comes from a desire to free yourself. And I, and I discuss all this in, in my forthcoming book. It, to, to free yourself... Um, from reality, really. So for example, take social constructivism. Social constructivism is the idea that everything is due to a social construction. So for example, why do men lift more than women? Well, because from a very young age, boys are taught to play aggressively, women are taught to, girls are taught to be nurturing, and that results in a cascade of downstream effects that causes uh, Bubba to bench press at the University of Nebraska, 18 times more than right. But it's got nothing to do with any physiological reasons, right? Of course not. Uh, so that's social constructors. Now, why is that a liberating framework? Because it basically says that had the environmental conditions been different, were we able to set up a social engineering process? that wasn't so constraining on women, then they too can be just as powerful lifters, right? If only my mother had hugged me more or maybe hugged me less or hugged me on alternative days, I too could have been the next Michael Jordan. There is nothing inherent about Michael Jordan that at the starting point would have would have increased his likelihood of being a superior NBA player than God sad. It's only because mommy didn't hug me enough. And so if going forward, if we can find the right hugging uh, structure, then all of us could be the next Einstein. All of us could be the next Michael Jordan or Lionel Messi. So again, it really comes from a desire to empower people by rejecting reality.
0: Mm. So it's, it's almost the extreme polar opposite of what some people could consider, say, like extreme right wing sort of supremacist ideology, which is kind of saying, well, if you fit these traits or you are of this race or this whatever, then no matter, no matter what you do, you're never going to reach this level. It's almost like an inversion exactly. Exactly. of that exactly. whole thing.
1: Exactly. And, and you see how both of these, as you correctly pointed, the extreme left and the extreme right, by being parasitized by these very tribal forms of thinking end up being equally likely to deny science, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, in my recent uh, appearance on uh, Joe Rogan, I was explaining to him that it's not the case. It's completely incorrect to think that, oh, the right denies science more or the left denies. It's that they deny different elements of basic realities that are in line with their religions. So mm-hmm. for example, the right will is much more likely to, de- to deny evolution, right? Because, you know, God and so on. Uh, Where is mm-hmm. God if it's evolution? Uh, on the other hand, the left is much more likely to reject evolutionary psychology because evolutionary psychology will say that, yes, there are evolved sex differences. So so in the one hand, the right will deny evolution. On the other hand, the left will deny an element of evolution, which is evolutionary psychology. Both are equally idiotic for different reasons. Mm.
0: So amongst academics in particular, you said a lot of this stuff starts at the university. So how has such an extreme fringe idea gotten such a strong grasp and stranglehold on so many otherwise intelligent people? Yeah. I, well, I don't, I,
1: that's something I don't yeah. understand. uh uh, george orwell and i'm gonna paraphrase him here i think he said something to the effect that it takes intellectuals to come up with really dumb ideas right i mean (laughs) mean, only intellectuals can come up with some of the stupidity that the common person says what right and and this is why you really truly do see a disconnect between you know I, i could go to parties where you know most of the people's most of the people are are not academics, and they say, "Well, come on, surely, I mean, you're making this stuff up because they they simply can't believe that this is true." I say, "Well, no, 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 come come to the humanities department at my university. It's called Tuesday, right?" Yeah. Uh, so, so I really think that it really does come from well, to to, to use now a term that's been overused, sort of the virtue signaling, right? I mean, academics are smoking pipes in their lofty ivory towers. They want to create a better world. And if in the pursuit of seeking to create a more just world, we have to destroy reason, logic, and science, so be it. That will Mm -hmm. be a consequence of building a better world. And that's why it comes from academia.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've literally seen people say that the very ideas of logic of meritocracy of rational these are these are white male supremacist <laughs> ideas and so, <laughs> so even if you're merely using logic or dialogue right, right you can't even you can't use dialogue because the the concept of dialogue and debate was supposedly created by these white male supremacists that i oh, keep hey, hearing think, about
1: think about how racist that is right so <laughs> well, logic And science are outside of the purview of black people. Only white have access to logic, right? Now, here's how you get around that, by the way. You argue that, no, there are other ways of knowing, right? White patriarchy comes up with this thing called science and logic and reason. Now, that doesn't mean that other people don't have alternative ways of knowing that are just as valid, so let me give you an example. And this is happening, by the way, at, across universities in Canada. Mm. Uh, there is something called the indigenization of the university in Canada. So the indigenization is to, to really incorporate indigenous ideas within the university. Now, that manifests itself in different ways. So it can manifest itself when you have uh, graduation ceremonies uh, where students are graduating with their degrees, you first have to start off by saying, "I," and you have to kind of self-flagellate, I hereby declare that we are doing this ceremony on Iroquois and Algonquin land. I hate myself. I hate myself, right? So that would be one form of indigenization. Now, the, all that stuff we can argue, you know, to me, it's grotesque because the students who have been there studying have nothing to do with grievances that happened 300 years ago. And we shouldn't taint their special moment by historical grievances that they had nothing to do with. But that notwithstanding, that's not nearly as dangerous as what I'm going to talk about next, where you try to indigenize the curriculum, right? So what does that mean? Uh, You argue that it is not true that if you want to study the environment, only the scientific method is the right way to study, say, environmental impact, right? You have to look at indigenous way of knowing. Now that's complete bullshit, right? Uh, it is true that if you are an indigenous culture that has lived in the high Arctic for ten thousand years, you will have content-specific knowledge that is greater than some guy sitting at Harvard uh, University, right? Because you have you have your whole culture has been in that environment for ten thousand years, so you may have intimate knowledge of the flora and the fauna that is truly unique. To your culture. I, I concede that. But there is no indigenous way of knowing. There is no alternative to the scientific method. If you want to test your ideas, you will still apply the same ideas, whether you're darker skinned Zubi, lighter skinned Gad, tall or short, indigenous or not. There is no other game in town. But those people are arguing, no, 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 there is a different, there is an alternative to the scientific method. University of Cape Town has this thing, you probably know it. Hashtag science must fall, right? So the idea basically is that to use the the epistemology of the scientific method is to be raped by colonial thinking. So you have to decolonize your mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's insane. <laughs> It, 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 lot.
0: Lot. No, no, it's just, it's so bizarre to me because I see these things and it confuses me because I wonder like what percentage of people, like I always think like who is pushing this, right? It must be the, the smallest minority of people who genuinely think this way. And then they spread it out to other people who then run with it and spread it out even more as useful idiots. But the places the ideas come from to begin with, I'm always confusing because I'm. I always say like I refer to they a lot, right? I'll say they, they, but sometimes in my mind I'm like, "But who is they? Who's the person who thought that was a that was a good idea? Who who is the body that decided? Okay, you know what? Forget the science thing. Like we need to do this. Like who who is that? And is that still coming from a noble place or a more destructive place? What's so the
1: yeah? So a couple of things here. Number one, it, it is true that. They do constitute, they do constitute the minority on campus. But that doesn't take away from how dangerous they are and how nefarious and how uh, you know ill-advised their positions are. So here's the analogy that I will draw. Uh, how many people did it take to bring down the buildings in 9/11? Was it 19 million people, 190 million people? Oh no, it was 19 people, right? All we needed was 19 very committed people to alter our reality forevermore, never mind the New York landscape. Uh, so, you don't need 10,000 rabid morons on campus to hold the rest of us hostage. You just need a few very, very committed ideologues who scream much louder than everybody else, and then they start. Uh, monopolizing the conversation. And then eventually, with enough patience, the downstream effect is that it seeps into organizations, into music, as you said, and industry, into journalism, into politics. Our prime minister is a product of all that nonsense. I mean, every single syllable that he utters is as though he is trolling as a fake social justice warrior, but he's not faking. He really is Exactly, that castrated idiot, right? So, it doesn't, you don't need 80% of the campus to be infected with social justice warriors for them to really hold all the power. Mm. What is
0: it about this? I guess you could call it postmodernism ideology, but what is it about it that makes it so potent, shall we say, compared to another kind of ideology, right? I feel like if you had radicals of any other type, say, in academia or at a university or workplace or something, I don't feel like they would be as, what's the word? I don't feel like their ideas would be as tolerated and propagated and just accepted as like, oh, okay, yeah, that's a a good idea. You see what I mean? So what is it about that particular
1: ideology that just Uh, makes
0: people just be like,
1: okay, yeah, yeah. Well, I think again, it comes from the fact that it, it it seems to remove the shackles of reality, right? It's it's nice to be free from reality. The, the, the problem, though, is that if you jump off a building thinking that you're going to be free of the shackles of gravity, you're quickly going to find out that gravity is going to catch up to you mm-hmm. when you splatter on the on the floor, right? The source of the idiocy comes under the cloak of academia, right? So let me draw an analogy. Uh, I've often remarked the following. If I say something insane, bigoted, hateful, racist, but I don't put it under the cloak of religion, then I'm a bigot, I'm a racist, I'm a hateful guy. If I say it under the cloak of religion, specifically one noble religion, then suddenly we're not allowed to criticize it, right? So that cloak of that religion allows me to say the very hateful things that anyone else, if they were to say it, would be properly condemned. And so the same thing, I think, happens with what you asked. Some of the stupidity, were it not coming from the halls of esteemed academia, people would say, what the F? But once it is coming from, uh, you may not know these names, but Jacques Derrida and Michel Mm -hmm. Mm Foucault and Jacques Lacan – as I call them the holy trinity of French, of modern bullseckers, <laughs> right? Uh, but it just sounds, even just the name, right? Michel Foucault, it sounds nice. It sounds impressive. Now, I've always argued, and I don't have proof of this, but I'm almost certain that I'm right, that these guys in the deep recesses of their minds before they went to bed every night, were laughing all the way to the bank. They knew they they had pulled the greatest hoax, but they couldn't extricate themselves because they could get up in front of a crowd at Princeton, pronounce all kinds of gibberish that no one understands. And what ends up happening? The audience thinks... If I don't understand what this schmuck is saying, it must be because I'm too stupid to understand it, right? Because I am Professor Dr. Michel Foucault, Mm -hmm. I must be speaking the truth. So this is why, so to answer your question in a long-winded way, this is why we grant them uh, coverage, because it's academic.
0: Mm. Yeah, no, it's interesting, because it seems like the roots of a lot of that goes back to, um, yeah, I mean, essentially... The, Frank, the Frankfurt School, that's what it's yeah, called, where lots of, these, lots of these ideas originally stemmed from. But I think that a lot of the people who propagate them have no idea, right? If I were to mention the Frankfurt School to them, lots of the people who propagate these ideas would have no idea what I'm even talking about. And I'm like, you don't even know where these, the Things stuff come. you're spewing, you don't even know where it's come from. And yeah. I think that's interesting how it's just, it's propagated and it's come to a head in the 2010s. It's like, it's more popular than, it's more popular than ever. It's now starting to affect, companies and governmental policies and laws. And you know, you're now having things going up in parliaments and questions around certain things where you're just kind of sitting there like, huh, like,
1: well, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, carry on, carry on. Uh, You know, I receive for for better or worse, uh, I, I've become sort of the central repository, the global central repository of people sending me stuff from their lives, because they want somehow to bear witness to some... I mean, they, they they want someone to know their story. So I just received a few days ago uh, in uh, a private Facebook message from a, uh, a gentleman who is applying for some uh, increase in military rank at, at a Canadian... You know, in the Canadian military. And he shared with me the gender equity kind of social justice warrior test that he had to take. And it's simply unbelievable. So if if it were Gad sad or Zubi doing a satirical sketch, you wouldn't think that we would be so creative. And that's why I always joke that my satire is prophetic, because I come up with some insane satire. Six months later, it is truth, right? Uh, And so the reality is that as you said, it's seeping everywhere. And this is what, by the way, upsets me so much when people write to me and say, you know, why do you spend so much time, Dr. Sad, fighting all this stupid uh, stupidity? Well, what do you mean? James Damore at Google, who had to be fired from his job because he said that there are sex differences between men and women, doesn't think it's stupid. The guy who is applying for uh, the, uh, an increase in rank in the military and has to, you know, argue that no... Women can have nine inch penises too. Uh, he doesn't seem that it's stupid, so mm. so no, this is actually deadly serious. It's as an attack on our most fundamental uniqueness of our personhood, which is our capacity to think and reason, and these intellectual terrorists and nihilists are turning everything upside down. so fight, speak out yeah, absolutely It's one of those things where I often feel like
0: people maybe maybe we just need to like arrange. Coordinate a day, like one day on the calendar where, where everyone at the same time across all these countries actually just speaks their mind and tells the truth because no one else is doing it. It's easier for right. me to just keep my head down and keep doing it. But it's like everyone is thinking the same thing, and you've probably got like 1% of people who truly believe in these radical ideas, but the other 99
1: are just like, no, well, let me just, uh, I just want to get on with my life. 100%. Right. And, and what they basically are doing is they are. Diffusing the responsibility on the few people who are courageous, right? Mm. So they're saying, Look, I could put out my neck, but then there are consequences to this, or I could send an anonymous email to Professor Saad and say, Hey, I really support you, but please, please, please don't mention that I support you. And that really is soul crushing, right? Because you realize that that's the problem, right? Exactly as you said, if the silent majority were to wake up and say, Basta, it's finished, no more then this problem would be resolved literally by tonight. Mm. But the fact that most people are frozen either by their apathy or their cowardice or both, this is what allows the very small group of people to continue moving forward. But I had actually a question for you. So you are someone who in your own milieu speaks out. What do you think it is that makes you able to do that while all of your cohorts don't? What is it that's unique in your personhood that allows you to do that?
0: That's a good question. I would say that I think first of all I'm quite a heterodox thinker to begin with and have been since I was a kid really. So I don't know if you know anything about my background. So um my family is my parents are originally from Nigeria. That's like where my my bloodline is from. Um I was born in the UK. I actually grew up in the Middle East. I lived in Saudi Arabia for 19 years. And then um, I came to the UK for boarding school. I went to Oxford University, studied computer science there, went and worked in the corporate world for about three years. And then I've been doing my music full time for about seven and a half years. So I've lived, so I've kind of grown up with a lot of exposure to three different cultures. So British culture, Nigerian culture, and then Saudi Arabian culture, essentially. So I've seen those three different worlds and traveled to over 30 countries. So I've always had a very, I guess, global perspective. So I think that, and then just some aspects of my personality. I mean, I'm very, very, I'm very intellectually curious, but I'm, I'm not, um, what's the word? I'm extremely assertive and I'm not afraid of, uh, I'm not afraid of conflict, right? Right. I don't, I don't, I don't get into a lot of fights and stuff like that, but I'm someone who's constantly having debates, having discussions against, about things that are contentious. I'm a little bit of a contrarian as well. So if I hear something that sounds kind of like, hmm, that doesn't pass the the smell test. I'll be the one who questions it, right? If someone's talking and they just say some stat or whatever, or they say, we want this, I'll be the one who goes, why? Right. Right? I'm a musician, okay? In the music world, with lots of the music festivals at the moment, they're trying to make the music festivals and the events, they're trying to make them 50-50 gender split. Okay. Okay. Hip hop, what percentage of rappers are female? (laughs) Okay. So this is the thing. So I'll be the one who asks these questions. So someone will be there. We, you know, we want this diversity. Great. And everyone will be clapping because the music industry leans like academia. It's 95% left, but I'll be the one who's like, wait, hang on. But only in heavy metal, in hip hop, in EDM in lots of these genres, 90 to 98% of the performers are male. So why would you expect a 50, 50 male, female lineup? and people because don't
1: it's the even patriarchy that's holding yeah. back women from being in it right of
0: course and, pe- and people don't and people don't even ask that question people just accept yeah 50-50 great and i'm like no wait hang on firstly why why would you expect that given the numbers of the inputs why would you expect those outputs number 2 why is this inherently a problem that needs to be fixed and number 3 how do you suggest we fix this problem without massively discriminating against male artists. I mean, there was a festival I wanted to apply to, and I wasn't able to apply because I'm a man, like literally, you know, and I was just like, wow, I was like, that strikes me as a little bit, uh, what's the word sexist. But, um, and then also with some of these schemes as well, I mean, there's some of the music funding schemes and things like that, which, um, are only available for example, to women, but they're available to anyone who identifies as a woman. So I say, you know what, next time I apply for some funding for my music, I will tick that box (laughs) that says that that I identify as a woman. Like, you know, if you're going to play these games, then why not? So I think it's a combination of a whole bunch of those things.
1: The reason why I asked you the question is because in a sense, in in my desire to uh, compel people to speak out, I try to look for what are what's the magic recipe of characteristics that would cause people to speak out? Now, some of them are just your unique personhood, right? There are elements of you and I that are unique to us that may not be transferable to other people. I wanted to add one element to why I think you do what you do and you tell me if I'm correct or not, because I, it certainly applies to me. Mm. So I often argue that my I am personally offended by injuries to truth so the way the way that I compare it is when there is a woman that is being harassed in an alley uh, and by a couple of guys a whole bunch of guys might pass by many might not stop but some will the ones who will stop it's because they can't bear that possibility that this woman so they will interfere mm. well truth to me is that woman, in the alley that's being accosted inappropriately. So I can't walk by the rape of truth and say, well, let somebody else worry about that. I I cannot, I physically cannot. I would Mm -hmm. be, I would feel as though I'm a fraud. I would feel as though I'm an imposter Mm -hmm. and therefore my standards of personal conduct are such that no amount of careerist repercussions that might befall me weigh more than me, being able to look at myself at the end of the night and say, did I do everything that is within my power to f- fight against this? Mm-hmm. Yes, I can go to bed at night. And I suspect whether you've thought of it in the terms that I've said it or not, that almost everyone who does it within their milieu, so in your case, within music, you probably have that righteous indignation.
0: What do you yeah. think? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, the way I think of it is it's it's very similar. It's It's got some slight differences. I think to me, it's like two of the traits I value most in myself and in other people are authenticity and honesty. I I value those extremely high. So whether or not I agree with somebody on a certain thing, right? If they are, if I can tell they're authentic and they are saying what they truly believe, even if it's not the popular opinion, I always respect that. That's why. Yeah. 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 The, The people don't understand why I kind of like, trump well i certainly certainly don't hate him i like a lot of the stuff he does i don't agree with all of it like anybody but yeah i I like that i thought that was refreshing because politicians in particular everyone all politicians like because people people go oh well trump is a liar and i'm kind of like yeah okay so which of these politicians are you telling me (laughs) is not like in fact i prefer the way he lies because he lies like bold face obvious it's a lie kind of thing it's not the usual political kind of like I will say this thing, but out the side of my mouth, I really mean this or whatever. So I value authenticity. It's why, um, you know, as soon as I, I saw your stuff, I liked it. It's why, it's why, you know, I like Joe, Joe Rogan's podcast because I believe he's very honest and authentic. I like Jordan Peterson. You know, as soon as I saw that stand he took in 2016 or whatever, I was like, wow, this guy is, um, this guy is fascinating. And then I discovered his other work through that, but it's just that authenticity. It's like, it shouldn't be so rare. But I do think it's rare because it's easy to get caught up in a web of lies. It's easy to, I think it's a short-term strategy, right? In the short term, it's normally easier to just n- don't rock the boat. Just yeah. just bite bite your tongue, be PC, don't say anything that's going to potentially, but if you keep on doing that, you then end up in this sort of web of deceit. Um, and then the second thing as well is I think, well, if not me, then who? Right i think if 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 not if i don't say it i can be in a whole room with people and every no one else is questioning something absolutely ridiculous that this person has just stated and i'll be the one who's like okay well um i don't agree with because this and quite often you can tell that i'm sure you get this a lot when you talk to someone who you can see they've never even had their view challenged yeah and and it's 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 quite mind blowing cuz i'll say something and they're kind of like i have this conversation a lot with um something like the gender pay gap yeah. All right, because people will be going on and on and on, and I'll be the one who will be like, okay, yeah, but da-da-da. And someone's like, you, you can almost see the program system error, kind of <laughs> like, wait, what do you mean? Like, And and then you explain it, and most of the time they're like, oh, I've never, either they get angry or they're like, oh, I've never really thought about it that way.
1: Yeah, that makes uh, you know, sense. I, I think that what's, that that system error that you mentioned, I often see it in my students when I'm teaching them about evolutionary psychology. I don't get into all the, you know, the social justice warrior stuff in my classes. I have a very clear demarcation between, uh, you know, some of these issues that I deal with and my, you know, just my scientific work when I come in as a professor. And so, of course, many students come in uh, having parasitized by the idea that, you know, biology doesn't matter to to, 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 to humans and so on. And... It's just amazing to see their faces when they are. I always tell that if I can't excite you when I'm teaching you about evolutionary psychology, I'm a really, really bad professor because it is so, it's truly paradigmatic changing, right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, well, the first time that I was exposed to evolutionary psychology, I've, I've told the story many times, was my first semester as a doctoral student. I, t- I had taken a course with a social psychologist who had assigned a book called Homicide by two of the pioneers of evolutionary psychology. And in the book in question, this is a husband and wife team, in the book in question, they discussed patterns of criminality around the world across time periods that really have several universal commonalities, right? Uh, So for example, uh, the the number one threat to a child in terms of the likelihood of him or her being abused is if there is a step-parent in the home. It's something in the order of 100 times greater than the next best predictor. Mm-hmm. So it's an unbelievably strong effect. Uh, there are very clear evolutionary reasons why uh, we, we're built to care less about stepchildren than our own biological children. Uh, the number one biggest threat to a woman uh, around the world uh, throughout all time periods is her long-term male partner. And usually he will attack her, if not kill her if he either suspects or knows that she has been unfaithful to him. The reason for that is due to paternity uncertainty. You and I don't come from ancestors where the men didn't care whether their women went with other men or not, because we are a biparental parental species. We invest a lot in our children. And therefore, I certainly don't want to spend the next 18 years investing in a child that's not mine. And so when I saw the explanatory power of evolutionary psychology, the parsimony with which it is able to so elegantly explain complicated phenomena, I was bitten. And I see exactly that in my students, right? It is truly life-changing when they see the power of the explanatory power. And so uh, if nothing else, one of the reasons why I love having these conversations uh, with all sorts of people, uh, including yourself, is that I know that there will be people watching this if I can be presumptuous, who in six months and one year will write to me and say, hey, you know what, as a result of watching the show with the Zuby, I decided to enroll in a program of study in evolutionary psychology. And the amount of joy that I will feel at having been able to, to shape that young mind is, is, is infinite. That's awesome. I've got, a, I've got two
0: questions there. Well, number one is actually when you talk about um, evolutionary psychology, that's. I think that's not. Some. I think people are more familiar with evolutionary <coughs> biology sure. than
1: evolutionary psychology. So, could you just uh, sort of oh, give a quick sure. notes
0: on the difference?
1: Oh, yeah. Th- thank you for asking this question. So, evolutionary psychology is basically the idea that, in the same way that we can use evolutionary principles to explain how our pancreas evolved to be the, the way they are, why we have opposable thumbs, uh, and so on. The organ that defines your personhood most, which is your mind, your brain, didn't somehow arise out of a process that's outside of evolution, right? So the application of evolutionary principles to explain the evolution of the human mind is evolutionary psychology. And so let me be more specific. So for example, one of the things that evolutionary psychologists argue is that the human mind is made up of, and bear with me, I'm going to say now I'm going to put on my professorial hat for a second. Uh, the, the the human mind is made up of domain specific computational systems. So, for example, in the same way that uh, the 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 things that our lungs are have evolved to do is different than what our heart has evolved to do, they each solve different problems, different evolutionary relevant problems. Well, the idea is that our minds are an amalgamation of different computational systems, each of which has evolved to solve a different evolutionary problem. Find mate, retain mate, avoid predators, build coalitions, avoid poisonous foods, uh, and so on, right? Each of these evolutionarily relevant problems that our ancestors would have faced would have necessitated that we evolve computational systems within our brains that are hardwired. And so what evolutionary psychologists try to do is identify these domain-specific mechanisms. Domain-specific means it is specific to a domain. So example, we know that facial symmetry is a marker of phenotypic quality. That's why beautiful people are symmetric. Well, if I want to establish whether this is an innate mechanism, how would I go about doing that? Well, I would use here something called developmental psychology. I would go to infants who are too young to have been socialized. By definition, they have not yet reached the cognitive development stage to have been socialized by L magazine and Cosmopolitan and Beyonce videos and I could show them different faces and then of course they don't speak they're too young they're six months old I could see which one they stare at first how long they stare at and not surprisingly their preference already reveals itself so that they look at beautiful faces, symmetric faces, and exhibit that preference. So in in doing so, I have demonstrated that there is an evolved blueprint that exists in these infants prior to them being able to have been socialized to that preference. So what evolutionary psychologists do, basically, is exactly what evolutionary biologists do. They simply apply it to the human condition and specifically to one organ called the human mind. So this is why all the people who uh, serve as the tractors of evolutionary psychology, I call them flat earthers of the human mind. Because they belong to the same society as those who go to flat earth meetings. There is no other game in town. There is no alternative to studying the human mind other than through evolution. But for all sorts of reasons, many of which we've previously discussed, people have an aversion to thinking that their minds are the product of cold evolution. And Mm. therefore, sure, Dr. Saad, we can use evolutionary principles to explain the mating behavior of the salamander but don't you dare use the same evolutionary principles to explain how I chose my wife. What are you, some sort of Nazi bigot, right? So what is it that people fear there? Uh, well, several things. Number mm. one, so let's do the, the one I just mentioned. Yeah. How, how did I fall in love with my wife? People People think that if you explain certain things scientifically, you remove their mystery. So if you explain, for example, romantic love, then you're vulgarizing it. There's mm-hmm. some, right? this is precisely why, for example, people including Jordan Peterson, uh, include I, I just did <laughs> Jordan Peterson, yeah. Uh, so, for example, Jordan Peterson argues that you know morality you know doesn't come from evolution, he uses the whole Christian stuff. And mm-hmm. as you know, Jordan is a good friend of mine, so but but that's insane, morality doesn't arise through something other than evolution. morality. There's been endless studies that have shown exactly how morality evolves in social species, including humans. So there is something very vulgar, very distasteful to many people and taking many of these, what appear to be very unique human phenomena and then giving me the exact neural mechanism by which it has evolved. I don't like that. It doesn't feel Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. This is what's called the human reticence effect. The human reticence effect is exactly the idea that people are reticent to apply the same evolutionary mechanisms that explain every other species other than humans. When it Mm. comes to you... So there are even evolutionary biologists. So these are not people who don't know evolution, are perfectly happy from this side of their mouth to explain how a particular flower has evolved through this evolutionary process. But the second that you try to explain anything above the neck, Mm. meaning the mind they think that you're a Nazi. And the classic the classic moron of that genre is a seventh-rate scientist. And if I'm being insulting, it's because I despise him. His name is P.Z. Myers. He's a guy who last published a paper, I think, maybe in the 14th century. So he walks around thinking as though he is Newton, but he's never really been much of a scientist. But he's got a very, very popular science blog where he basically – you know, uh, insults evolutionary psychology all day long. All evolutionary psychologists are racists, are bigots, are sexist, And meanwhile, he's an evolutionary biologist himself. So it's a real challenge to get people to overcome many of their disdain for evolutionary psychology. I get you. So it sort
0: of removes some of the magic and mystery and mystique and emotion almost, I guess.
1: Exactly right. Uh, Listen, I can be very uh, spiritual in that I go in front of the canyon, uh, the Grand Canyon in in Arizona, Mm. and see the majesty of that place and truly be moved spiritually without having to think that it is due to a God and booga booga. Mm. Uh, And so so somehow evolution. I I believe in
0: God, just so you know. Oh, that's okay. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm not someone who thinks that. um all of these things are incompatible ideas, shall
1: we say? Fair enough. Uh, yeah. By by the way, there is a a movement in science uh, called it's called the Noma principle, mm-hmm. non-overlapping uh, magisterium magisteria. Uh, it comes from Stephen Jay Gould, who is who was he's he's dead now, but he was a Harvard paleontologist who actually was an evolutionist, but hated evolutionary psychology, and. Okay. He- he tried to argue that, so non-overlapping magisteria, he, he tried to argue, he, he's, he was what's called an accommodationist in that he, is, he was trying to argue, hey, religion and evolution can coexist. They're simply addressing different realms, mm. right? So we don't have to put them against each other. On the other hand, there are other scientists, most scientists, frankly, who argue, no, we don't have to be so accommodating. To the extent that religion... Does make scientific claims. Actually, like, if religion were simply truly staying out of the explanatory game, then I I would I would be a supporter of the noma principle. Mm. But to the extent that religion does intrude into science, then I think I'm a bit less of a accommodationist.
0: Yeah. What do you think the? So let, let's flip that around then. So we've we've talked about what other people perceive as the dangers of. I guess your work or your line of work and thinking, but what do you think from, from your perspective, what do you think are the dangers of having some sort of potential compromise yes, or where uh, do you see religion negatively impacting the progression or forward movement okay. of say evolutionary psychology?
1: Yes, yes. Uh, so several possible answers. Uh, from the most pure perspective, Remember, I said I'm offended by attacks on truth. Mm-hmm. I don't support the idea that if something has functional value but is wrong, we should support it. So, what, what do I mean by that? Mm-hmm. that? There are there are undeniable benefits to being religious. As a matter of fact, a colleague of mine who is an evolutionary biologist, David Sloan Wilson, has argued that groups that are religious outsurvive groups that are not via greater communality cohesion cooperation so there are very earthly benefits to having greater religiosity at least at the group level uh even at the individual level there are benefits to being religious right it certainly helps to think that there is some grand daddy in the sky Mm -hmm. who you know is has a plan for all of us, right? That makes me feel good. Otherwise, how can I explain the cruel reality that a four-year-old child has just been stricken by cancer? That's impossible to to understand. And so there are clear benefits to being religious, whether it be at the individual or at the group level. But my biggest concern, remember, is, is it it fundamentally true or not? Mm. And I don't have proof that these ideas are true. And therefore, at the most pure level, to me, they are an affront. My gosh. Uh, that's number one. Number two, I think that for all of the individual and group benefits that religion does offer us, it also allows. And I can't remember who it was. I think it was Stephen Weinberg, the f- Nobel Prize physicist, who said this. I'm going to paraphrase it: that you know, only religion can make otherwise good people do truly terrible things. Right? Mm-hmm. The guys who woke up on. and were going to do the things that they did, didn't wake up and say, let's be really bad guys. They actually think that morality is on their side. They think what they're doing is perfectly just, right? And so there is something truly unique in religion that can make us do the most grotesque things. So let me give you another example. Mm -hmm. People are quick to quote from all sorts of religious texts to prove that morality must come from booga booga. But they forget that the next line has an edict that is so immoral that you think, how could you think that that's a moral book? So, for example, take your insolent children to the gates of the city and stone them to death. That doesn't strike me as very moral. The
0: Old Testament. I've never read the Quran, but I mean, I'm a Christian. The, the Old Testament certainly has a lot of uh, questionable conflicting book. I mean, there's lots of stuff I've noted down in there where I'm like, okay,
1: next time I talk to my
0: pastor, I need to, I need to, (laughs) I need to make some inquiries here.
1: He's going to have an explanation for you. He's going to have a gold medal in mental gymnastics Mm. where he's going to contort himself in 17 ways. No, no, no. When it meant take your insolent children, it really meant not insolent. It meant loving children. When it said stone you to death, it's metaphorical. It means stone you with caresses. That's what Mm. it really means. You bigot, if only you understood Aramaic, you would know that it wasn't stoning. That's exactly, by the way, what you see with Muslim reform, right? Mm. The only way that you're able to look at the Islamic holy text and arrive to any conclusion other than they are filled with endless amount of genocidal hate, is to argue that kill, 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 take an espresso break, resume killing, really means kill with caresses, right? If only you spoke Arabic, you would know that. Well, I speak Arabic. It doesn't mean kill with caresses. So so it's very difficult as, as a purist, as a truth seeker, to argue that you know religion offers me something. I could tell sure. you what, what it does offer me, even as a very avowed non-believer, I love my Belgian shepherds. I love my dogs to to beyond belief and when they passed away, I was truly heartbroken. I will engage in a form of secular magical thinking to get me through that impossible reality, right? Mm. So in other words, I think we'll we're never going to get rid of religion. Religion is an indelible part of our humanity mm. because We are regrettably the only animal that has this big prefrontal cortex that is aware of our mortality. You and I know that the party is going to end in 30, 40, 50 years for both of us. And that's an impossible thing for me to accept, right? Mm. And people always say, somehow death will miss them. It will attack everybody else. And the only way that it could miss me is if I take this magic pill called religion. If I have problems, I go to see my physician. He gives me a pill, and boom, my LDL scores go down, and I'm, I'm back in action. But there's this one problem that I can't solve, and that's my mortality. There's only one cure for that. It's called religion. So it makes sense to believe. It, and as a matter of fact, I'm the anomaly. Not yeah. believing, <laughs> not believing is the default. Uh, I mean, is it's contrary to the yeah, default. Yeah. You are the rational guy. But yeah. I can't believe it because, to me, it's untrue. That's fair
0: enough. I've got two two questions um, based on what you said. So the first one is, I've I've heard from um, a lot of non-believers the idea of how did you word it that only religion can make good people do terrible things. What about the flip side of that? Of what about the amount of potential evil or potential terrible deeds or potential wars that may have been prevented because people did believe in religion. I mean, I know from my own personal perspective, like I don't think if I was a non-believer I'd be some sort of crazy maniac or something like that, but I do personally in my own sample size of one believe that I am a better person for my for my beliefs. Like there's a lot of things that I how would I put it? It it sounds weird cuz it makes it sound like I'd go out and, you know, kill people yeah. and do do some horrible stuff if I didn't believe in God. Just not like that, but I know that for me, having that fear of God, of there being something above myself that is seeing what I'm doing, even when nobody else is looking, that does certainly play into my behavior and treatment of other people and things like that. And so I assume that for billions of other people, that's the case. Because I've heard a lot of people be like, oh, you know, lots of people have died because of religion or lots of wars have been fought over religion. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get you. I get you completely. But how many have potentially been prevented because of it like it's it's theoretical I don't know if you have any thoughts on that
1: yeah no that's a great question uh, there is actually studies that have looked at when you uh, for example are playing an economic game you, you cooperate or not simply by putting uh, I think I, I I hope I'm not getting this wrong but you you put sort of what, what if you're like eyes looking at you mm. that will make you that will modulate your behavior there's that's something well, guess what? God is the big eyes in the sky, as yeah. you said. Now, f- forgive me, I hope you won't get offended by what I'm going to say. I-
0: I'm very hard to offend, don't worry. Thank
1: you. Uh, I think it's a lot less pure if you don't do something because God would otherwise not look you know, will look bad upon you or punish you or send you to hell than if you don't do something simply because of the purity of your personhood, and I'm willing to bet, frankly, that even if I removed God, and I'm, forgive me, I'm being presumptuous, but in a sense, it's a compliment to you. I'm willing to bet to bet that you would be the exact same upstanding person, even if I removed God from your belief system. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, uh, well, I can't remember the exact uh, saying, but it's something like this: uh, Being a a noble person is doing the right thing when no one is looking, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I don't cheat I, on. That. I guess
0: my, my question then comes from, you know, objectively, Where does it come from? objectively, what is the right thing? I think for some things, it's, it's quite obvious. And I think, the, I think the evolutionary reasons not to kill, kill your neighbors or your family members or to steal from them, I think that's quite obviously deducible. But I think with some of the more complex aspects, I think it's. Give
1: me one. Give me one.
0: Give you one, okay. Uh, okay, let's let's take an let's take an obvious one. You just said you don't you don't cheat on your wife, okay? So um, cheating wow. on a, cheating on a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, from an assuming you don't get
1: caught. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, why is that? Why is that wrong? Why Perfect. is that objectively yeah. morally wrong? Yeah, I'm curious. So, so so we are a biparental species, meaning that even though women invest more in their children than men. Human males are incredible fathers in the animal kingdom. Mm. And that's why we're classified as a biparental species. We're not... uh, So cheetahs, the only thing that the male does is he copulates and then he's gone. It's only the female that takes care of the children. In the human context, males are incredibly vested. So on the other... But also, there are clear evolutionary reasons why both men and women would stray from their monogamous union. So here what you have... Is multiple Darwinian pulls. On the one hand, I have the desire when I see a gorgeous uh, girl with the right uh, behind to say, hmm, that's nice. But on the other hand, I also know that uh, as a biparental species, staying true to my monogamous union uh, has clear evolutionary implications. This is why, by the way, romantic love. We were talking earlier about vulgarizing what romantic love is. This mm. is why romantic love has evolved because it allows us to pair bond a man and a woman long enough until the child reaches sexual maturity. This is why when couples don't have children, they're much more likely to divorce because the the neurophysiology of love, of being in love, mm. is removed once you no longer have a child. So, So I think basically there are clear evolutionary reasons why... We should stray and there are clear evolutionary reasons why we should not stray and therefore morality comes in to deal with these tricky situations but morality itself is an evolved instinct right mm. uh and so to answer your question we face these Darwinian pulls every day. I really feel like eating a juicy burger, but I also know that if I have too many juicy burgers, it's not good for my health. So which of these pulls is going to take me in which direction? Mm. So none of these conundrums needs to be couched in, but there needs to be an arbiter in the sky to guide me.
0: I get, I get what you mean, but how how would you determine which of those is morally correct? You said you've got those evolutionary pulls in both directions. So who is to say, you know, this might be a bit postmodern, but who is to say that that one is right and that one is wrong?
1: The, well, there, there is no what's right. Look, it depends mm-hmm. what the, what the calculus of what you define right or wrong in yeah. an ideal world. Uh, I would go behind the shed and have sex with girls that <laughs> look, that, that look like Beyonce. Yeah, and, and by the way, that's what most people do, right? Yeah, I
0: mean, I'm aware some people do, but again, it's it's right. generally yeah, considered yeah. it's generally considered
1: immoral and right. But wrong. by the way, and, and women, but by the way, women too. Uh, you may yeah. not, you may or may well. I think you would know this, but let me give you the evolutionary breakdown. People think that evolutionary theory argues that men have evolved astray, but not women. Uh, Nothing. Women. Women, it's a status thing more. Well, you mean in terms of them cheating or in terms of... Well,
0: well, both. It's more like the hypergamous. It's more a hypergamous, whereas with
1: men, it's more like variety and fertility, really. But even for women, there's a variety thing in that, mm. for example, when women cheat, they're much more likely to do so when they are ovulating. Mm. They're much, much less likely to insist on you wearing protection or having using contraception. You would think that if they're trying to avoid being pregnant... They certainly would be using contraception when they're cheating. They're much more likely to cheat with a male who has superior genes Genetics. Than, yeah. than the one that, they, right? So if they're fantasizing about straying from their long-term union, they're thinking about the guy who's got the body of a male swimmer, male Olympic swimmer, than they are about uh, Bill Gates. So, So women, too, have evolved a calculus for straying. Not to the same extent as men, but both. So to answer your question, there is no who's to say what's right, what's wrong. As, as a matter of fact, if we if we give take your premise, which is it must be due to religion, then how do you reconcile the fact that religion also has grotesque immoral prescriptions? Mm-hmm. How do we get rid of I it? I, I, I,
0: un- I understand you? I mean, this is where that's why I like these type of conversations, because I, I think it's interesting. Like I said, I think with with some things like with the obvious ones, you know not killing people, not stealing from well certainly people within your tribe. Again, I think you know, again if if we're going to view ourselves as pure animals, right? Then I think I think this is this is what I kind of come down to is I feel like um I mean I, I've spoken to I know tons of people who believe in God and tons of people who don't and we always have really interesting discussions. But I think that so for example, if I talk to someone who's who's an atheist who kind of Thinks the world would just generally be better without religion. I don't know if you're, I don't know if that's your personal position, but I know people who that's their position like you know if we could just get rid of this whole religion thing, then everything else will be nice and fine. And I'm always like, I am nowhere near as uh, optimistic about you than you on that one. Uh, on multiple levels, I do think as you've sort of alluded to earlier, I do think that if, firstly if you did that, I think that a large group of millions or billions of people who do not lose their religion, are likely to come and conquer you to put it <laughs> simply right i think i think that's the first one i think if you if you let society become that fragmented and people don't have this umbrella whether you believe its truth or not if people don't have that umbrella and that wider kinship and family then i think yeah over time that's that's ripe for takeover by masses of people who do i think that's kind of number 1 and then number 2 i just think in terms of the objective morality in terms of having some form bedrock of foundation of morality that doesn't move too much, in which because I, I think if you're as we've alluded to earlier, if you're intellectual, you can kind of argue or justify anything, right? You could you could say something that's just like, oh well, you know, it's fine to cheat on your wife because xyz abc you know, you can refer to biology, you can refer to evolution, and and it, and it can make sense. You can articulate it very well to the stage where someone will be like, mm, I guess there's nothing wrong with it, right? Um, I mean, even to the point of killing. Certainly in certain situations, people could argue, well, you know, there's this, there's that, there's that. So to me personally, this might be my pessimistic side, but I think that that's that's a grave danger. I also think that a lot of these ideologies we were talking about taking root in the Western world, I think a big part of that is because this is completely theoretical, but it seems like people have some sort of religious or spiritual or ideological core, like people want to believe in something. And I find a lot of the people who believe in some of these more radical progressive ideas almost always they don't believe in God, right? It's like if someone does believe in God, that
1: prevents they be- they 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 are religiously parasitized. It's just mm-hmm. not in your version of what God is, and, yeah. and right they are religious in their fervor. They do have revealed truths, oh, right? Yeah. No borders. No human is illegal. Mm-hmm. There are no. Those are revealed truths to them that no scientific evidence is ever going is ever going to overturn. Mm-hmm. So, so you're correct that they don't have the same conception of God as as a traditional believer with, oh, yeah. but they are religiously per. Oh, ab- absolutely.
0: Uh, to me, it's a intersectionality. To me, as a secular religion, exactly. Right. That, the the, <laughs> the whole like when someone just takes that whole bundle of st- those ideas and implanted it them in themselves. I'm like, I'll, I'll be talking to some people and I'm like, look, you're you're more religious than I am, right? right. Because I'm, I'm willing to say, look, I believe in God, I have faith, but I, I fully accept I might be wrong. And I'm happy yeah. to talk to people who do not agree with me, <laughs> who do not agree with me on this thing. I'm happy to consider it from different angles. But with a lot of people who are very infected with that, they're far more rabid and hostile and aggressive and I'm kind of like, whoa! Like that's that's what you're saying. Like <laughs> it's it's a, it's a very funny thing because it's it's all just inverted and subverted. And you can know, I you know.
1: can I give you a uh, a challenge right now? Is that would that be okay about your religiosity? Go for it. So I I wrote a, uh, a section in one of my previous books where I describe a Martian who is shopping for the one true religion, right? So he shows up on earth and he's looking, I mean, as a also consumer psychologist, I use the term shopping advisedly. And so he starts asking, uh, am I allowed to eat prosciutto? Should I wear leather shoes? Is it okay to masturbate, right? And I list an endless number of questions, okay? Mm -hmm. Some of them incredibly banal and, Part of minutia and some of them truly grand. Yep. Right. For every single one of the questions that I pose in this hypothetical exercise, I can find you two religions that preach the exact opposite prescription for each of those questions. So when are you meeting me, Zubi, at the next atheist meeting? Just, <laughs> let's 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 go back so that if you're so your viewers are Digesting this properly, right? Mm-hmm. Every single question that has an absolute moral prescription mm-hmm. is one where I can find. I mean, I'm not talking about, is uh, it okay to kill, right? Mm-hmm. But I'm talking about mundane things to profound things. Is it okay for me to? Is it gay sex okay? Is um, uh, you know promiscuity okay? Is it this? Is it Every single one, there is some religion out of the thirty thousand plus religions. Mm-hmm. That prescribes something differently. Damn, no pun intended. That sounds suspicious to me. No. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I get, I get that completely. But that doesn't. Well, what's, um,
0: what's my answer?
1: Yeah. How do you, how do you reconcile the challenge I just said? What do we do with the Martian?
0: What do we do with the Martian? I
1: don't think that.
0: Hmm. I'm just trying. I'm just weighing this up properly because I haven't. Uh, this is a. This is a new question to me. <laughs> so. So what's what's the exact question
1: here? Well, the question is that the the contradiction in that hypothetical example mm-hmm. suggests that the the edifice on which religion is built seems to be very suspect. Let me mm-hmm. put it another way: if you were born accidentally in Mecca, mm-hmm. you would absolutely—I'd be, I'd be a Muslim. You'd be a Muslim. And yeah, if I you know were that. Born uh-huh. In Tel Aviv, you'd be a Jew, and if uh, you were reckon- born.
0: Sorry. No, I, I, I rec- sorry, I was going to say, I, I recognize that completely. I recognize that me being a Christian is largely based on, should we say, accident of birth.
1: Exactly. Now, if you said, for example, I view, and I, it's kind of a bit of a cop-out, but at least it's a bit more reconcilable with the example that I gave. If you said, you know, I believe that God is reason and love, now you're defining God to be sufficiently vague as a term, then, yeah, mm. you do, I'm a believer, right? Uh, but the reality is that believing in Christianity believing in Judaism, believing in the endless other has very specific connotations. Now you may choose to ignore this one and implement this one, but you're just being a hypocrite, right? The reality Mm -hmm. is if I want to believe in Christianity, there is a clear road to to salvation. It's not a parable. It's not metaphorical. It's not allegorical. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. If you are a Jew, you believe certain things. Now, how could all those things exist together? Right? I mean, Richard Dawkins said that the difference between a very religious person and an atheist is actually a very small one. The religious person is atheist about 9,999 out of (laughs) 12 whereas the atheist is only atheist about one more God. Yeah.
0: No, I get you. I get you. So I think it depends on... I'm sure you've had this conversation with your friend Jordan Peterson. So (laughs) the whole concept of God i think is based a lot on how would i put it the level of abstraction the way i look at it is my concept of god is not a necessarily a a man a man in the sky right i think that's uh that's a that's a little bit flippant but you know i, don't, I think it's like uh you know you could say the creator some people even even atheists might use the term uh i don't know the, the universe or the creator or something so I think the I think that all religions, whether they're monotheistic or they're polytheistic, I, I view them essentially as different layers of abstraction, shall we say? So with a polytheist who believes that God is everything, God is everyone, God is this chair, God is this table, God is this computer, God is everything. That's like a super micro level of abstraction with mon- with with typical like polytheism where you've got multiple deities that's like, okay, there's a God of the wind, there's a God of the sun, there's a God of the water, et cetera. With monotheism, you're saying, you're, you're bringing it into one and you're saying, no, this is a God of, this, this is just God. There's just the one, there's the one thing. So it's a, it's a complicated, it's a complicated one. It's something that I need to like mull over myself and to articulate better. I certainly believe amongst the, um, amongst the monotheistic religions, certainly the the main three Abrahamic religions, the way I've always viewed it, li- literally since I was a kid, maybe this is because I grew up in Saudi Arabia, right? So I grew up obviously surrounded by Muslims. And the way I always understood it, and not everybody, whether Muslim or Christian or Jewish necessarily agrees with me, is I view it all as the same God. So I don't view like a Christian God, a Jewish God, an, an Islamic God. I, I look at it as a God, and then the religions are different ways not even believing, but different ways of worshiping the or having faith in the same God. That's always how I have viewed it. So I haven't viewed it as like, okay, this is my God and my God and your God and your God. I've always viewed it as like, no, there is God. And then yeah. different people around the world in different places have different ways, different traditions, different cultures of essentially doing the same thing, even if the nitty gritty is a little bit different. So, you know, that person refrains from eating pork. I eat pork. They refrain from doing that. I can do that. They. So in terms of all those rules, I guess, coming back to your alien checklist thing, uh, I don't know what, I don't know how uh, articulate
1: an answer that is per no, se. That, that, the the point is to of, challenge. Yeah, each other. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. Forgive me. It's not, I don't want you to at least not at all feel like I'm... Y- no, it's fine, man. It's fine. I, uh, I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, it. I think what you're describing is what... Is known as buffet religion or (laughs) cafe (laughs) religion. Take a bit of that. Take a bit of that. Exactly. So, Hmm. so Zubi has just created a new religion. It's not Christianity, but it's the Zubi religion. Where, (laughs) but, but that religion doesn't exist. Christianity Hmm. has very, very clear prescriptions as to what God is, and it's not the Islamic God, and it's not the Jewish God. You may decide that they're all the same God. They're not. It's right? not. A,
0: it's not the Jewish God. How how would that be?
1: Well, uh, okay. there is only. There's only salvation through, through Jesus. Jesus Christ. Mm. We don't believe that, mm-hmm. right now. Where where you and I can bypass all that is if we say what is spiritual in the world is love, is the pursuit of knowledge. You and I, right mm-hmm. now, having this conversation. That spirituality. You want to call this God? That's God. That's me having <laughs> had the pleasure of got- getting to know Zubi, which I would have never gotten to know were not through the magic, the divine magic of Twitter. And <laughs> that's not, right? but, w- but once you start saying, "I am a Christian," I'm a- now. You could challenge me and say, "But wait a second, Doctor Sad." I constantly see you saying that you're Jewish, mm. right? How could you be an atheist and a Jew? Now, here's how. Let me, even though you didn't ask this question, let me. Let me. Yeah, no, I I know, I know plenty of Jewish atheists. So, what do they? What do they usually say to reconcile these two? Well, I mean, you're ethnically Jewish, right? Exactly. So there is a very one of the elements of being Jewish is the the specific religious beliefs. Mm. But 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 the Jewish identity is is a multi attribute identity. It's multifaceted, multifaceted, Mm. and therefore I can be very Jewish in that I come from a lineage a shared history, a peoples, and very much identify as part of that people without believing in the religious narrative of that people. So if you told me that there are elements of Christianity that are truly things that you want to associate with, you know, Islamic art, Islamic architecture, you know, there's all kinds of things that have arisen within Islamic societies that are wonderful, but that are very earthly. And therefore, in that sense, I very much identify as Islamic. Good stuff. Good stuff. But once you start ascribe or, or associating with specific tenets of the religion, then that's where my Martian guy example becomes particularly apropos. Mm, I get you. I get you.
0: It's uh, something that would need a, a good
1: hey, amount of thinking. Pro-
0: pro- probably on a live streamed podcast. <laughs> I, uh, I'm not gonna, you know, I've got i I've got a, I've got a super, a super brain here. You know, I mean, I've, <laughs> I've, I've never had a, I've never had an evolutionary behavioral scientist who's you know done decades of decades <laughs> of work on the subject to grill me on my uh on my yeah. religion so i wasn't i hope
1: i hope it wasn't grilling it's just a very <laughs> uh, friendly conversation
0: yeah no it's all good like i said i'm not a I, I i made this podcast because i enjoy this kind of repartee you know
1: yeah and I'm, I'm i i i constantly see your increasing metrics and so may you reach the infinite sky soon thank you so much
0: so uh, before we go, tell us, please, tell us a little bit about the book you've got coming up.
1: Yeah, so the book basically is—I uh, mean, the current title, which I'm almost willing to bet will eventually change—is called "The Parasitic Mind," and it's basically to to explain the the title uh, in a very succinct way. So there are different parasites that can infest all sorts of animals. One that your viewers might have heard of is Toxoplasma gondii, right—the the parasite that infects mice so that they lose their innate fears of cat. As a matter of fact, they become sexually attracted to the smell of the cat's urine. Oh, wow. So when you are parasitized as a mouse by this particular parasite, it ends up with a maladaptive consequence. You get eaten by the cat, which is important from the from the perspective of the parasite because it can complete its uh, uh, cycle. Uh, there's another type of parasite that uh, infects ungulates, uh, deer, moose, elk, and when they are parasitized by this particular brainworm, they sometimes will engage in what's called circling behavior. They literally start going around in the circle, unable to extricate themselves from that circle, even though there are looming predators that are coming. And so I take this idea of neuroparasitology, uh, parasites that infect your, your brain mm-hmm. across many different species. And then I use that model to argue, well, wait a second, humans can also be infected by these types of parasites. But there's another class of agents that they're parasitized. Those are bad ideas, right? Idea pathogens. And so I I argue, well, where do these idea pathogens come from? To go back to our earlier conversation, they're from the ecosystem of the university. So what I basically do is I trace, if you like, the epidemiology of these idea parasites. And then in the final chapter, what I try to do, which is exactly why I asked you the question, what is unique about your personhood that allows you to speak out? Because in the final chapter, I then try to the best of my ability, we'll see if I'm successful or not. I try to offer prescriptions because it's one thing for you to come and say, here is the disease. But if you then don't say, but here's the cure to the disease, people are not going to be happy. And, and, and I know that my publisher and other people that I've spoken to have all said, don't just be the guy who diagnoses the problem. You've got to give us the cure. And so this is really the story of that book and uh, should be out probably in early 2020. I'm currently writing it feverishly. So be on the lookout for it.
0: Awesome. Oh, absolutely. I will certainly be getting that. Awesome. Great. Dr. Gad Saad, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. and Thank you for being a great conversationalist. Awesome. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Cheers. Take care. I am the man sick with the slang, sick of
0: and I'm destined for fame.